0: Robots vs. Dinosaurs is a proud member of the Apocalypse Podcast Network. Check out Apocalypse Podcast Network for more great podcasts. The following podcast is brought to you by Robots vs. Dinosaurs. Robots vs. Dinosaurs (laughs) is brought to you by the 28th Street and Crescent (laughs) Vogue. Disclaimer, this podcast is about to spoil several movies from 6 to 20 years
1: old. Lou, read off the list.
0: Today, Robots vs. Dinosaurs will be spoiling for you, the listener. The Incredibles. The Incredibles 2. Ratatouille. Batteries Not Included, Superman, Beauty and the Beast, The Twilight Zone, Transformers 1986, Happy Gilmore, Godzilla, Bambi, Bambi Meets Godzilla, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and The Avengers. Hello and welcome to Robots vs. Dinosaurs, the podcast where we watch a movie every week and then try to determine which one is cooler, robots or dinosaurs. I'm your host, Louis G. And with me as always is my co-host, a new co-host every week. This week, I brought on as my co-host, actor, writer, comedian, host of the pop culture podcast, Pod Queens, which can be found on the Apocalypse Podcast Network, co-creator and star of the sci-fi comedy web series, Wormholes, and my very good friend, Gamal El Sua. Hi, Gamal. Hi, Lou. How are you? I am great
1: today, and uh, how are you? I'm doing all right. I'm 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 genuinely thrilled to be here. I love this. I love talking to you. It's like it's like being back home.
0: Yes, it is. We are going to be talking about an awesome Robo movie today. But first, Kamal, I want you to introduce yourself to the audience a little bit. Um, I mentioned that you have a podcast and a web series. Uh, would you like to talk about those a little bit and tell our audience tell our
1: audience what you do? Sure thing. Well, yeah, like you said, I uh, writer, actor, I used to work in theater before the pandemic, and so now we're figuring out new ways of doing things. And both of the things that, that you mentioned, Pod Queens and Wormholes, are two things that came out of the pandemic, actually. So Pod Queens is a kind of, I would say, queer forward, POC forward, pop culture podcast. Podcast. We're a shoot the shit podcast. We, uh, every week we talk about a topic. We have hot takes because we always have strong hot takes. And we talk about it for an hour and see what happens. It's very funny. It's very casual. Uh, Lou was on it not too long ago. Kamal, I was going to
0: ask about that. Yeah, our, our listeners uh, have heard some rumors that yeah. uh, one of their favorite podcast hosts was recently a guest on Bad yeah. Queens. It's um, true. We
1: had a great episode. It came yeah, that out was a, a fun few episode, weeks ago. actually.
0: Uh, yeah, I, I, I was invited to be a guest on Pod Queens. I had a great time talking to Gamal uh, Gamal Sajda and Jelani about robots and gender. So listeners, you have heard me talk about that a lot on this show in various robot episodes. And um, I would love for you to check out that episode, check out that interview, because you get to hear the Pod Queens opinion about robots and gender. And they brought some really, really exciting stuff to the table, too. So I was, I was thrilled to be on your show, Gamal, and I'm thrilled to have you as a guest ah, on my show.
1: We are nothing if not opinionated. Thank you, <laughs> Lou. Um, and, and the other thing is wormholes. We're, we're coming out uh, strong. We just finished releasing our season. So myself and my two roommates, Sajda and Conrado, Sajda, who also hosts Pod Queens with me, we had a theater company and we were going to put up a play pandemic happened. We couldn't put up the play. So we were depressed for about a month and a half and we decided that we were going to create a web series from scratch. And by some way or another, we came up with this idea of These two roommates, myself and Sajda, play these two roommates who live in a New York City apartment with an active interdimensional wormhole in their closet, which causes strange paranormal hijinks to occur. It's wacky, it's wild, it's funny, and it's 10 episodes long. You can I'm pretty sure by the time this episode comes out, you can watch all 10 episodes now uh, on Instagram at wormholes.tv or on YouTube at the Show Dogs NYC YouTube channel. It's a fun show. We have a telepathic dog. It's great. Yeah, Gody, and it's uh, it is a great show. I'm a big fan of it. I've seen every episode ah! so far.
0: I'm very excited to watch the finale this week of the season finale. And uh, listeners, you can check out. I'm going to have a link to both the Instagram and YouTube link in the show notes, as well as a link to Pod Queens, so you can listen to that awesome podcast. Oh, um, and just one more thing about wormholes. Like, I, I, I <laughs> if you're a listener and you listen to a lot of podcasts, you probably know like. Hosts will often, uh, you know, uh, gas up something that the the guest brings on because it's, you know, you, that's what you do. You promote stuff. But I am genuinely a big fan of wormholes. I think that even if Gamal, I think even if you and I weren't longtime friends, and I like stumbled upon this web series, I would still be hooked and and want to subscribe and watch every episode. And I mean that genuinely. It's really I'm fun cry. <laughs> sci-fi sci-fi comedy. And uh, that's kind of what this podcast is all about too, Robots versus Dinosaurs. So, <laughs> so yeah, I really, really encourage you, if you're a fan of this show, if you're a fan of sci-fi and comedy, check out Wormholes. Oh, thank you, Lou. You are our <laughs> target audience. So I'm <laughs> happy to hear that. <laughs> you enjoy it. <laughs> so Gamal. Yes. Why don't you tell our listeners what movie we are going to be discussing today on Robots versus Dinosaurs.
1: Fantastic. I hold in my hand one movie. And the movie that we will be discussing today is The Iron Giant.
0: That's correct. The 1999 Warner Brothers animated feature, The Iron Giant, directed by Mr. Brad Bird, who also directed a, a movie that is in the Robots versus Dinosaurs pantheon, Batteries Not Included. So you can uh-huh. go back and check out our episode there. Uh, Gamal, what else did Brad Bird create and direct? Glad you asked.
1: Oh, this goes back to our conversation before I didn't even realized this. <laughs> Lou, The Incredibles. Here, are The Incredibles. Mm, yeah. sure we had a long did. conversation about The Incredibles.
0: <laughs> yeah, this, um, this, the Iron Giant is is a is a animated movie that came out in in you know almost uh, in, in the late nineties. It's not a Disney movie. It's it's a Warner Brothers movie. But then Brad Bird did go on to work and direct for Pixar slash Disney. But yeah, the the there there's a lot of the same like family kind of bond and story and, and tone to this. And actually, battery's not included. I don't know if you if you're familiar with that movie, but it's also very similar. And we talked about some of the parallels between that live action movie uh, and The Incredibles on that episode. So I, I like Brad Bird a lot. I like I like his work.
1: I, I never I never really knew his name, I think, actually, but now looking at his IMDb, okay, I'm a film critic, um, mm-hmm. I'm realizing that I've, I've seen quite a bit of it. He also did Ratatouille. Ratatouille, which is taking TikTok by storm these days, the kids. Is it? What, uh, what do you mean by that? Oh, Lou, do you, you have TikTok? I do. I love TikTok. You love TikTok. So maybe, mm-hmm. maybe you just haven't gotten to the section of TikTok, but there's this trend that's been going on this... This one girl, she, I forget her name, oh God, I'm so sorry, but she, like, posted this video of her singing an ode to Remy from, from Ratatouille, saying, uh, just a love song. Remy, my Ratatouille, the rat of all my dreams. I praise you, my Ratatouille. May the world remember your name. And so everyone on, like, musical theater TikTok, like, took, took that. And um, they made it into like a musical. So they made it into like a choral version. And then all these people are like creating original songs for Ratatouille the musical. And it's just this big tread. Now there are so many songs for Ratatouille the musical. People are doing dances. People are making sets. People are building puppets. It's hilarious.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. I am, I'm going to link to that in the show notes as well so you can check that out. Uh, the internet is undefeated. It's crazy. It's just like you, you have an idea. And if, if the internet itself catches on to it or latches on to it. It just, it like, it becomes this crowdsourced project that gets all of the best minds in the entire world <laughs> connected and and focusing and working on it. That's, uh, that's awesome that, like, this TikTok user found something that has that much uh, universal, broad appeal, right? so cool. So this movie, uh, we said it came out in 1999, and there, what do you know about like the production of the movie, or like how how it was received, or or you know where it fits in sort of to the timeline of 1999?
1: Well, you know the con- the concept of 1999, the concept of the year 1999. In the grand scheme of things, I'm I'm not so sure. But I was reading Wikipedia last night, the great text of Wikipedia, <laughs> um, and they were saying the holy internet that, bible. Exactly, they were saying that original. This is based on a story by mm -hmm, hold for research i don't know it was a a story by a guy he was sylvia plath's husband i believe and it was called the iron man ted hughes ted hughes wrote the iron man uh he's an englishman Uh, and apparently i heard a rumor that he wrote it for his children after sylvia plath um, killed herself as like an idea in an exercise in like empathy and existentialism, it was, it was, it's interesting. Uh, so it's based on that, although it was changed a lot. Uh, you know, it, it, the, the Iron Man took place uh, in London. This takes place in Maine, in America. But it's still like, it's based on that. It was originally supposed to be a musical. Did you know that? I did not know that. It was
0: originally supposed I don't to be a know. Musical. I don't know that I would want it to be a musical. I would watch a version of it that's a
1: musical, but I don't know if I want that. I, I'm glad it's not. I, this is a, you know this was the late '90s back when the, the Disney Renaissance was like booming, and so mm-hmm. some studios were trying their hardest to make musical movies like like Anastasia, which wasn't a Disney movie but was like had all the pieces of it, and like the Brave Little Toaster. Although I think that was technically a <laughs> Disney movie. But Pete Townsend, okay, so I did research, I guess. Pete Townsend mm-hmm. from the Who was going to compose the music if when it was going to be a musical, huh? And then that it would just be cool. fell through
0: yeah, yeah. now you know what the more the more you, the more details you're throwing at this iron giant musical the more i'm interested hey. in that parallel universe where that that alternate dimension that uh perhaps we could travel through your your closet wormhole to find where this <laughs> music iron giant musical exists because i would like Absolutely. to check that out that'd be cool was was this movie successful when it came out i didn't see it in the theater i i, I didn't see this movie until i was in college and
1: my roommate Wait, really? was telling me about it. yeah yeah wow i'm glad you you asked about the success, Lou. I, I I feel like, well, you know, in nineteen ninety nine, I what 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 month did this come out? July of ninety nine. I was a good yeah five years old when this movie came out. So I don't know if I saw it in theaters, but I definitely saw it as a child, and I might have seen it in the movie theaters because my cousin who used to hang out a lot with me was a few years older than me, so he maybe. Here's a, here's a question: Did any do you
0: remember at five years old any of the marketing of this movie reaching you in any in any significant way?
1: I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't know why I saw it. Maybe they had a McDonald's deal or something and I got a toy or something that made me me aware of the film, but I wasn't, I wasn't like, I don't know why I, I I think it had to have been like my cousin wanted to see it and I went to the movie theater or like it was just on TV or something and we, and I watched it at home because it was on TV or we got the tape or something back Mm. when we had VHS tapes, but uh, Apparently, it didn't do very good at the box office when it first came out yeah, it was a it made a lot less on on the great text of Wikipedia. It, it cost fifty million dollars to make and it only made thirty one point three million at the box office so like they Oof. they yeah, and I have some theories as to why to be quite honest now
0: uh is one of the, is one of those reasons because Jennifer Aniston was like at the height of her popularity from friends, so she was probably super expensive back then or like,
1: oh. I wonder I wonder if that drove the budget up. They have some some premier voice talent in this movie. I'm sure they were not cheap. Um, yeah, they got group yeah. for this one. They did get group for this one. Poor Vin Diesel, who's on the cast to, like, go, <laughs> like, Poor what Vin mean? Diesel? That's I mean, the I don't dream. Know. He makes a lot of money. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but, like, when you're an actor and, and these are two roles now where you're cast to, like, just grunt and say a few single words. Um, do you? know. <laughs>
0: Do you know this though? Uh, whenever whenever any Avengers movie gets translated into a different language, he he records the Groot lines in that language. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: like he's dedicated to <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. So so what are so what are your theory about or your theories about why it didn't do well?
1: Well, you know, I was reading here that someone said something about, you know, they wanted to do a sequel because a lot of people liked this movie and they said there would never really be a sequel because it was a box office failure. There was this idea that they wanted to do kids movies that were family movies that were like smarter so that like everyone in the family could really enjoy them. But when you do that, they said, you know, you don't get a lot of return. And I think actually this movie might be a little too smart and mature for Kids to get when I was a kid and having seen this movie again this weekend. I mean, I like the movie, but I didn't really get it. I didn't really get it. The pacing was a little like it did not appeal to me as an ADHD child um, very mm-hmm. much. It's it's a very nice like slow burn. Like it's a well told story. Like I, I see that now. It's like well constructed and it's a, a great film. But as a kid, it 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 didn't really stimulate me that much in, in the way that uh, I as a child wanted to be stimulated by a, by a, like a kid's movie. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So I feel like that's yeah. part of the reason why I feel like a lot of kids maybe weren't interested in, didn't jump at the chance to see it, which is they didn't really beg their families to take them to the movies to see the Iron Giant. Mm-hmm. And the ones that did see it maybe didn't love it and wouldn't want to tell their friends and wouldn't want to go back. But a lot of the adults clearly loved it because it was like critically acclaimed and it's garnered this large cult following. Right? so, I think.
0: Do you know what's funny? I It's been years since the first time I watched this movie. And I found out something when I was watching it the other night for the podcast. I didn't see the ending of the movie the first time. Oh. So it's funny that you talk about like there they they were plans for a sequel. For almost, uh, for almost like 15 years or however long it's been since the first time I've seen it, I was carrying around in my mind the, the false memory that the Iron Giant dies at the end and that's it. I don't know what happened. I know that my college roommate is the person that showed the movie to me for the first time. I don't remember if I fell asleep, if I thought the movie was over and we turned it off, but, like, I did not see... We're going to revisit this later when we get there, but, like, I did not see that little stinger at the end where his head bolt comes back and, like, goes and finds him at the glacier in, in uh, Iceland.
1: Can I tell you? I wish that wasn't the ending. Same. I wish yeah. it ended with the Iron Giant dying. Actually, yeah, it takes a lot of the air out of
0: out of the the. It takes the impact of that ending out. It, it's yeah, I agree. We'll we'll revisit that. We'll revisit yeah, get, we'll get talk, that. Yeah, let's go. Let's talk. Let's go back to the beginning of the movie first. So I yeah musical guests. Uh. Um, come <laughs> on. The opening Maybe. shot of this movie has the WB logo and this is a movie thing where the sound already starts when you like before the movie actually starts where we're seeing the logo and instead of you know a stinger or some kind of opening music or whatever like attached to that logo it's just this steady beeping sort of radar sound right it's building up this little mystery and then we see space and a probe traveling through space and then we get a title card that tells us this is earth 1957, as this, uh, what looks like a comet, is hurtling towards Earth. And, oh, I, I did gloss over one very important detail. When we see this space probe probe traveling through uh, space, it has a, a hammer and sickle on the side of it. So we know at this point, you know, we're talking about uh, this is a Russian space probe. We find out later that it is Sputnik. And, ooh, and the, I'm going to fact check myself on that later. I might edit that out, but, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure it's Sputnik. We do see this hammer and sickle inside of us. We know it's a Russian space probe. Then we see this object that turns out to be IG, the Iron Giant, hurtling towards Earth through the eye of a hurricane. I love the way that they do this transition from space down into the ocean. He hurtles through the eye of a hurricane down into these choppy waters, and there's one boat sort of struggling against the elements and this is our intro to the movie. Um, We get another title card saying, somewhere off the coast of Maine. And uh, the the ship that we're seeing is the trawler Annabelle, and we see the captain, Earl Stutz, frantically talking into his walkie-talkie, trying to uh, bring up the coast guard saying, I lost my bearings, I'm taking on water. Finally, he sees what he thinks is a lighthouse, but it's actually this 100-foot iron giant that turns towards him and Gamal, does the iron giant rescue Earl Stutz in this scene, or does he swim to shore? I couldn't really tell what happened here. I couldn't really tell. I, I think I
1: think it kind of cuts away. It's, right, it doesn't show what happens, right? It's up to right. assumption. Well, yeah, we sort I, of I,
0: see him climbing up the rocks towards the actual lighthouse, but we don't know how mm-hmm. he got there. And I would I would like to assume IG saved him, but we don't know.
1: Yeah, I think that would be nice. I my impulse is to think that. The Iron Giant didn't save him because I feel like later on, Hogarth really teaches the Iron Giant, like, empathy and saving. Uh, and I think right now, in the beginning, he, he maybe didn't inherently have that, especially after having just conked his head, you know? That's um, an interesting theory. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. After this uh, very exciting opening action sequence, we get introduced to our main character, Hogarth Hughes. And he's riding his bike through this, what's the word? Perennial uh, Maine provincial, town. Provincial. There it is. Sorry. <laughs> through this very provincial Maine town. And he gets to the chat and chew diner where his mom works. So, Gamal, what do you think about the setting of this movie? In, it's Maine. It's 1957. Why do you think they, because it's animated. So they could have put it anywhere in any time period, right? So why Maine 1957?
1: I love I actually love the setting I love that it takes place in 1957 with the concept of this invader so they could kind of like talk about the the cold war and and Russia in a way that's like so like in a children's movie that's crazy and they did it so subtly but still like that context is the current that runs throughout this entire film again that's the thing I just I don't think I realized that as a child but I think that's brilliant and I, I don't I'm not familiar with the original novel so I'm, you know, I'm sure that was in there as well I love that but the difference was setting it in Maine I loved that it was set in Maine also because it was like okay no offense to Maine but like Maine to me is like it's kind of like the middle of nowhere like it's Maine it's like you know when you think of like big cataclysmic events you think of like New York California mm. like the big big areas of, of America you don't really think of like one of the furthest parts of the northeast yeah. Maine and yeah, it's we, the um, fall, which is a gorgeous color palette also. I don't know if this is part of the reason, but we do have a
0: submarine base in Maine. And oh. submarines come into play later on in the movie. So I wonder if that had something to do with it.
1: I was gonna say, did you feel seen by this movie, Lou? <laughs> uh
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't talk about this a lot on, on the show, but I am oh, a, a Navy veteran. No, 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 it's fine. Um nope. Uh, I just don't know if my listeners know this inherently, but I am a Navy veteran and I, I served on a, a submarine. So when we get later, when we get to that missile launch scene from the submarine, I'm going to have some things to say. I got some um, questions for you. <laughs> awesome, awesome. But yeah, I wonder if that was part of the motivation because the the submarine Navy really, really came about from well in World War World War II. It was extremely effective and extremely, an extremely important part of the the naval warfare in that war. And so our, our efforts to increase our submarine Navy really, really ramped up throughout the Cold War because the main, the main job of a submarine is surveillance of, a, of what other countries are doing with their military equipment. So during the Cold War, we would have used uh, our, that surveillance uh, method to keep an eye on whatever Russia is doing and, and you know whatever things they're launching. So I wonder if that had something to do with the decision to make this animated movie in Maine
1: um, why maine why, why is, is it because it's the closest geographically I'm a theater student I didn't I don't do geography is it the closest to like the other countries in the world
0: <laughs> uh, well we have let's see we have bases in Maine Virginia and Georgia oh, and wow. Connecticut um, and then on the west coast we have them in Washington and California so it's I guess it's just a matter of like that's where the Navy the was able to, okay. yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure I'm sure that that is a researchable uh, mm. question, but I don't know the answer off the top of my head. Well, that's interesting, though, that you brought that up, because that provides uh, even more context. Mm. When Hogarth gets to where his mom works, the Chat and Shoe Diner, he, uh, we do see like a couple of people are reading a newspaper. I think we see Dean reading a newspaper, and on the front of the newspaper there's this headline, Russian satellite seen in the night sky. Artificial moon and another really interesting thing, which was it shows what looks like an advertisement for a robot, like a robot toy. In the in the newspaper ad, it's labeled as battery-operated moon explorer. And I am, this is where, this is where I'm starting to build theories about why was the Iron Giant created? Why was he mm. built? And where was he built? Who built him? I don't think it was actually the Russians. Do you? What
1: do you think? No, I... I... Oh, interesting. I I think he's alien tech. I always thought he yes. was like alien tech. Me too. Me too. Okay.
0: Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of references to like, you know, the 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 Sputnik Russian satellite was was sent into space to collect data about the moon specifically. You know, there's a lot of there it, there's callbacks later on. There's a few other advertisements or newspaper articles and things that referenced moon exploration and the Russians putting an explorer on the moon or a robot like, like our Mars rover that can collect samples or do things, do science on the moon. And I think those are all theories that America had and that these Americans in this movie have about what's going on. But keep in mind, this is 12 years before we actually, either country, actually landed on the moon. Uh, so it was all, you know, this was the height of the race to get there. So... There's a lot of focus on on that specifically, like space exploration, advancements in NASA and what's Russian NASA? Cos- uh, Russian NASA. Um or NASA. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what is Russian NASA called? Because I'm probably going to use that. <laughs> research break.
1: Lot. Research break.
0: Soviet space program. That's what it is. Soviet, Soviet space program. <laughs> space program. <laughs> Um, they do, some people call it Roscosmos. I'm not going to try
1: <laughs> Roscosmos. Roscosmos.
0: Okay, so uh, so Hogarth is, is bringing in a, uh, he has a box uh, that has some kind of animal in it, and his mom is immediately telling him, no pets, don't do this again. So we're sort of getting a, a, a characterization of who Hogarth is. He responds, he's not a pet, he's a friend which tells us how Hogarth looks at the world, how he interacts with animals or, you know, this sets up later on how he's going to interact with the Iron Giant. He's not going to be prejudiced. He's not going to have these preconceived notions about things, you know, he's, he's a lonely yeah. kid.
1: Which, yeah, I mean, what a brilliant way to start the movie. I, you know, looking now in retrospect, like as a writer myself now, this movie, the, the things that are set up and the way, like you said, they're established, like you get, like what a small detail kind of, I don't even know if I would immediately think of like, he brings a squirrel in a box and, and his mother says like, not again, you know what happened last time, like this is such a, this is like a habit of his, of like bringing in lost creatures and treating them with kindness, um, mm-hmm. even when they even when they go on a rampage, like the squirrel goes on a rampage through the through the diner, which is exactly what's going to happen in the rest of the movie. The mm-hmm. beginning of this movie, I, I just to say, even from the beginning, like if this movie was made today. And I guess if it was live action, like this would be pure Oscar Bait movie. Yes. Like the tone of this movie, the way it's written, like the the, the scenery, even the animation is so much more fluid than like your average nineties cartoon. It's so brilliantly fluid.
0: I think also, you know, we were talking about why main. I think the color palette Beautiful. is yeah it really there's a lot of of Hogarth riding his bike through the woods, and you see these tall, tall evergreens and all these huge trees everywhere and it's very picturesque, um especially man when when the snow starts falling later on, it's yeah. absolutely gorgeous,
1: yeah, and it's a gorgeous film I mean, I, I don't know, yeah, visually stunning. Surprised that it wasn't nominated for any Oscars. I know this was like back in the 90s when that was like, I don't know if there was an animated feature category back then. I know Beauty and the Beast was nominated for Best Picture, which was an anomaly back at the time. And Um, it was the first, that was the
0: first animated film that was, right?
1: Yeah, it was. They didn't like doing it. So, but I'm surprised. Like this movie is so, in my opinion, brilliantly made and a clear Oscar made, in my opinion.
0: I agree. This, uh, you were saying this opening scene has a lot of foreshadowing to what happens later on. The squirrel starts running havoc around the diner. Various townspeople are reacting differently to it. Um, we get our introduction to one of the best characters in this movie, Dean, played by oh. the wonderfully talented Harry Connick Jr. And I wrote down this line because- Oh beat hard. beating there's, uh, there's all this like humor with Hogarth introducing himself to Dean because the squirrel went under the table and it starts crawling up his pant leg and dean is trying to play it cool uh he's trying to act like nothing's going on and then at some point he can't the 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 squirrel has made it all the way up his leg and well, he stands squirrel. up and he says i'd like to apologize to everyone in advance for this and then just whips his pants off <laughs> in front of the whole diner and that's when like when that as soon as that happened i was like oh the writing in this movie is i, I did not give it enough credit when i saw it as a younger person the writing is brilliant in this movie these are some great lines
1: yeah and the fantastic performance by Harry Connick Jr., a uh, sex mm-hmm. symbol in his own right. Um, uh, Dean, sex symbol of a character, in my opinion, having seen it as an adult, thinking uh, thinking thoughts.
0: Tell, so tell us about Dean. Tell, talk about Dean in this movie, in this diner, in this
1: town. Like, who is Dean. Well, it's super interesting to 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 think of this character. Again, like brilliant writing, brilliantly set up. He he's the artist. He's this beatnik artist. The, the, the first time we see him, he's wearing like sunglasses and a turtleneck like the signifiers of like kind of like a pretentious like poet artist, like beatnik kind of guy. He's emotional. He but he he goes along with Hogarth. He's the only one so even in the beginning of the film who goes along with him and while he has the squirrel running up his pants, he tries to keep it cool, even though he's kind of the logic in him is freaking out. So I think it's interesting to see him as a character because it's this idea of like this this uh, he's in the body of an adult and he knows like adult decorum, but he also has like the whimsy of a child because he's an artist and he's imaginative and he has to. And this idea of, I, I don't know, the, the, I mean, art is often what's the word i'm looking for combative and was often used to protest so to have one of your main characters in this very like cold war themed movie be like an artist who 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 fucks with the government technically in the movie he's a sculptor he works with metal i'm sure that's interesting i don't know what do you yeah. think about him yeah no he's uh, yeah he, he sees the good in people yes he sees the good he, in people he um, teaches hogarth about the um that that, that man the, the crazy man <laughs> Yes, about Earl Stutz. Earl Stutz is the is that captain that we see his boat
0: uh, being you know wrecked at the beginning, and 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 he almost dies. He is in this diner in this scene as well, and he's he is trying to tell everybody what he saw, and they're all treating him like oh that's just Earl old crazy old old man Stutz the crazy man Dean. For no, for no benefit to himself, for any discernible reason, stands up for Earl in in an interesting way. He just says, "I see," or what does he say? I think he says, "I believe you," uh, or he maybe says, "I I saw it too." He backs up Earl just just because other people are bullying him, and he doesn't like bullies. I think that's Dean. I think Dean yeah. is an anti-bully.
1: Yeah, and very very anti anti bully, and then also like begrudgingly anti. The, well, uh, what's the character's name? K- Kent. Kent Mansley. Oh, anti Kent the Mansley. Government. We, Shooter McGavin. We're going to get into yeah. Kent Mansley. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's anti-bully and also like anti these people. So like, yeah. is the government bullies in this movie? Like, yeah, I guess kind of. Anti- yeah. He anti- reminded um,
0: another it. Brad Bird movie. Again, this was covered in a previous episode. So we'll go back and listen to that for all of our thoughts on it. But there's a very similar character in Batteries Not Included named Mason Baylor, who is a painter. Uh, and it's 1987, and he's a painter. He's an artist, and he reminds me very, very much of Dean. Um, mm. You said Dean is a sculptor. That is something that that ends up becoming very convenient later on in the movie. He because he works at a junkyard, and he actually has this existential crisis later on where he asks himself, "Am I a junk man who makes art, or am I an artist
1: who makes junk?" <laughs> Don't we all ask ourselves that question? <laughs> every every day in our career. So this diner scene a lot of fun.
0: It sets up a lot of things for later on in the movie. But then after this, we get this. Sh- we get- we find out that Hogarth is kind of a a latchkey kid, right? He's a, a kid that has to like spend a lot of time at home by himself. He doesn't have any siblings. Single mom Annie, and Anna or Annie, Anna. It's Annie, 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 Annie. Single mom Annie has to work really hard, uh, you know, to support him. And dad is not around and dad is never once mentioned in the movie. No. Do you have any theories about dad, about Mr. Hughes? Oh,
1: I I I never thought about it actually. No, I don't. Do you? I do. How old yeah. do you think how old do you think Hogarth is? That's a great question. I wanted to say around like maybe 10, like eight to between eight to twelve, maybe. I gave, him
0: a li- I gave him like 12, maybe,
1: yeah, 11 or 12. Mm, I could see that.
0: And this is 57. 12 years prior, <gasps> we were still in World War II. I wonder <sighs> if Hogarth's dad got drafted while Annie was pregnant and he died overseas. Um, <gasps> oh my and- God, Lou because he doesn't seem to miss his dad in a way that, you know, oh, I have all these memories with my dad. He has, I think, a photo of him as a pilot or something. He has a helmet that he wears that I assume might have been his dad's. Wow. But there's not a lot – there's really, like, no mention of this past with the dad. So I wonder if he died before he was even born. And it's just my theory, but the the math checks out that, like, if he's about 12 years old – he could have been he could have been born while his father was fighting overseas
1: wow that's so that's definitely it. that's just the kind of like subtle storytelling I would expect this movie to do and like mm. good on you for for keeping an eye on that and connecting all those dots Wow that's definitely <laughs> I, I'm a full believer now <laughs> awesome well we see so we see
0: uh, Hogarth having to be at home by himself and his mom tells him you know no scary movies and so of course the first thing he does is watch this movie that my goodness this <laughs> <laughs> These lines, we get this very, like, uh, this very crazy, like, Twilight Zone, almost, performance oh my gosh. this movie that he's watching. And I wrote this line I, down. I have lots to say about the Twilight Zone later in, in reference to this movie. And this man and this woman are in a lab, and he's saying, Why the porpoise can communicate telepathically, Miss Nolan, if we can transplant at least 15% of their brain matter into ours. We may be able to read minds.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's so interesting. Also, again, like this movie is so specific. I said I had lots to say with the Twilight Zone, but I'll bring up a little bit now. The Twilight mm-hmm. Zone, also like this show from the '50s, who well, a, a little after this movie takes place, it came on '59. But like a show that's all about like using horror and the paranormal and the weird and the sci-fi to talk about political issues like the Cold War. I mean, the, the Twilight Zone had so many episodes dealing with fears and. You know McCarthyism. One of my favorites is The Monsters are due on Maple Street, which I honestly think fits in with this movie. I think they're kind of like in conversation with each other, to be honest.
0: So is what Hogarth is watching based on an actual episode of of Twilight Zone, was there an episode of Twilight Zone where they were transferring porpoise brains into human brains?
1: (laughs) Not to my knowledge. That sounds like more of a parody to me. But, um, you know, I mean, something like that would kind of have been par for the course, I think in the twilight zone, Mm -hmm. Uh, it's definitely, if if it is based on an episode, it's definitely not one of the more famous ones. Um. It's fun
0: though. And it, and it leads to, uh, you know, Hogarth hears a noise and he has to like run upstairs to go see what it is. And this is how he ends up finding IG. Um, When he goes up to his roof, to fix the, (laughs) uh, to try to fix the antenna or to see what's wrong. He finds out that the antenna was eaten and he sees sort of tracks and a broken fence leading off into the woods. And this kid just grabs his gun and some tape and he wraps, uh, he wraps the tape around and make like a flashlight on the end of the gun and just runs right into the woods after whatever this might be. Very, very, is he brave or is he stupid?
1: A little bit of both, right, I think? <laughs> when you're a child, you know, you're kind of like that. And you're brave and stupid at the same time. And, you know, he watches all these cartoons, I'm sure. He, he's established he reads super, Superman and all these comic books. Yes. So I feel like he's, like, primed to – I mean, when I was his age, like, I was, I was kind of like that. I was like, yeah, I could do anything because I yeah, read that- Superman because I like my superheroes. <laughs>
0: That's a good point. That's a really good point. Yeah, he's he's intrepid at the very – I think intrepid is the right word for what he is. Very
1: intrepid. I don't very little think I know fear. what that word means, but okay. – it,
0: mean, it means that he is uh, daring and bold and has very little – he hasn't learned fear, it seems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very that, very that. And so we, we see him – he eventually catches up to where the Iron Giant is, and this is where we see that the Iron Giant – eats metal. He's eating metal off of a power station. So he's first just taking scraps of metal and chomping on them. And then he tries to eat this power conduit. And that leads to him getting overloaded with electricity and then trapped in these power lines. And Hogarth has to save him by by shutting down the power station. Gamal, Hmm. why does the Iron
1: Giant eat metal? That's a great question. I I had some thoughts about it. I'm not sure necessarily what it means. I don't know that I haven't necessarily formed a intelligent opinion other than that i wonder if metal is directly correlative to like power especially during this time the idea of like metal things are strong and so if this giant comes and eats our metal he's taking away our power there's this thing when it comes to like alien invader movies especially with americans you know americans are well not just americans but like a lot of white people are big colonizers, right? So this idea that like aliens will come and colonize us is one of the most terrifying things we can imagine because, oh, yeah. because we know it, we, we, you know, the idea is that the white people of the world know what it's like to be colonizers and they don't want to be the colonized. And so that's why they're so afraid of aliens. And I wonder if like in this movie metal equals power. And if they, yeah. if this guy eats the metal, he's taking power away from the world and the people in charge. Yeah, because if bet you didn't like, think
0: if, you were going to get a sociology essay here, huh? Because <laughs> well, yeah, if he's allowed, if if the Iron Giant is allowed to to eat as much metal as he wants to, completely unchecked, then who knows what what that will do to all of our industry and, and our technology? And you know how could we ever stop him unless he wanted to stop eating it? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, metal is a very very important resource, especially because especially when you're focusing on space exploration, right? You need. Uh, me- various durable metals <laughs> in order to survive in space. So uh, it's definitely a precious commodity at this time. I'm more, I guess my my question is more, what does the Iron Giant need the metal for? You, you said it might be fuel, you know, because we don't see him, we don't see him losing like his power source. We don't see him needing to like get gas put in him. I assume that like like submarines or, you know, like other advanced atomic machinery he is powered by a nuclear generator of some Hmm. sort or whatever the alien equivalent of that is i think he eats metal as sort of a way to it 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 expands his body it's um his way he i think he processes the metal and it turns in you know the same way that if you ate protein and turned it into muscle i think is it is what allows him to continue developing the reason I think that is largely because of, again, Brad Bird's previous work, Batteries Not Included, the, the aliens in that movie are called fix and they're these sort of robot aliens from space that collect, like, toasters, tin cans, and other things, they cut the metal, they cut all the scrap metal up, and use it to build baby robots, like baby versions of themselves. Um, which they then give life to. So I wonder if this is, and it's also like, have you seen the Transformers movie from 1986, the animated one with Unicron? Mm-hmm. I haven't. Uh, Unicron is another space robot that eats metal, plan- it eats other robot planets. Like it tries to eat Cybertron, which is where the Transformers are from. And the re- when, when it does, when we see Unicron eating these metal things, we actually see the inside of it where it's processing it, breaking it down, and using it to expand its power and its body. So, yeah, it's all, it's all speculation. The mo- this movie does a good job of building mystery and not answering certain questions so that we can have these conversations and speculate <laughs> and have a lot of fun speculating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right, so shortly after this scene where Hogarth saves, saves the Iron Giant, we get introduced to government D-bag Kent Manley, <laughs> Played by Shooter McGavin from Happy Christopher Gilmore. McDonald. Christopher, Christopher McDonald. McDonald, fantastic performance. Ken Manley. Yeah. Kent Manley.
1: Happened Ken Manley
0: yes. worked for the government. Ken Manley worked for the government. He comes to town uh, because there is. He has heard reports about this giant metal
1: man. It so, like, can, can we say like an X Files parody, like a very much like a Fox Mulder kind of character, which I love. Yes, and this
0: yeah, ninety nine. That really 99. tracks with. Uh, X-Files being the height of popularity and like, yeah, that's a good call out that he's a very, very Fox Mulder kind of, well, in one sense, yes, but he is also very skeptical, isn't he? He he doesn't,
1: uh, I'm not he's sure. He's both of he, them. He's Mulder and Scully rolled into one character. There it is. There it is. He's the perfect storm. <laughs> Mulder
0: mm-hmm. and Scully. So... Do you have any thoughts about when the scene when Hogarth and the Iron Giant first actually meet? Because there's the scene where he saves him. And then later on, the Iron Giant finds him and he's, or he wakes up and Hogarth sort of tries to introduce himself. He's like, can you talk? Blah, 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 like that. And then we see Vin Diesel going blah, like a metallic blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. Our first group moment, he
1: teaches them the word rock and then the word tree. yeah. Uh, that's a yeah I mean again just another example of how well plotted out this movie is and and how truly just building upon what we've already come to know of Hogarth. Well first of all the the he is comfortable with the giant once he realizes that the giant is mimicking his moves, right? He falls down and he sitting on the floor and the giant sits down in the exact same position and like Hogarth moves his legs and the giant also moves his legs and it's, it's kind of like subtle way of saying like look like we're kind of similar you and I which is what gets Hogarth to trust him and then he goes into his like what we've come to learn is like his innate human nature which is a thing in this movie Nature versus Nurture his idea of like oh like I can trust you. I can teach you. Maybe you just need my help. And mm-hmm. he starts immediately teaching him, like this is a rock, this is a tree, and the giant picks up on it fast. Let me tell you. So, do you think? Do you think that I, I think that the fact that
0: this yeah. this creature, the iron giant, can can communicate, it has the capability to communicate, but it doesn't it doesn't immediately speak English or speak any verifiable language. Until it starts learning individual words and phrases and stuff from Hogarth, do you think it was sent to Earth, or do you think it got knocked off of course on whatever its mission was and crash landed
1: here? Well, that's a great question. I don't know. Uh, my impulse is I I don't I don't think it was coming here actually personally.
0: Hmm. I don't think so either. It, everything about it no. seems like it. It had some sort of purpose that was, it was clearly built for war. It was clearly built for attack or defense. And I think that it might have gotten damaged in the the crash, and that sort of made it forget whatever its mission was or have to reset in some way and reboot and start over and get new programming, new orders, new protocols. Uh, (laughs) Hogarth wraps up this scene saying, this is the greatest discovery since television because, you know, you, you remember when uh, famous explorer Ferdinand Magellan discovered television, right?
1: Oh my God, brilliant. Um, brilliant.
0: <laughs> the, the Iron Giant starts following Hogarth and it eats some of these uh, train train tracks. And Hogarth mm-hmm. sees a train is coming and this is going to be <laughs> a terrible disaster because the train's gonna derail. Uh, Hogarth convinces him to very quickly piece the, the tracks back together and bend them back into shape. And he almost finishes it just in time for the train crashes into him, smashing him into pieces. But then we see the Iron Giant doing this sort of T-1000 thing where this antenna pops up and all of his parts start, as if they're individually sentient, start crawling and and making their way towards the center until they all rebuild and and reassimilate.
1: So- Great foreshadowing, great foreshadowing.
0: Very good foreshadowing. So this train wreck happens and shortly after this, we see a man, Mansley is starting to cotton to what's going on in this town. He's his car gets eaten, and a lot, a lot of other bizarre things start happening that he's he wants to investigate and he wants to get more government resources down here to investigate. So he calls his boss General Rogard, played by the dad from Fraser, John Mahoney. And oh, wow, all star voice cast this movie. And General Rogard mocks Kent Mansley because he doesn't actually have evidence. Uh, he doesn't have a photo. He doesn't have a piece of the thing. He just has his own eyewitness testimony to the car that was eaten. Mansley shoots back, "I'll get you evidence, and when I do, I'm gonna want a memo distributed."
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> is this the phone <laughs> call he makes in in Hogarth's house, or is it? It is right. You're right.
0: I skipped over a very. Yeah, I skipped over that that whole thing. That uh, yeah, this is where this is how Mansley sort of gets mixed up with the Hugheses. To I think he has to find a phone, right? He's mm-hmm. out somewhere and he's trying to find a phone. And somebody right points sells. to the Hughes home and he goes down there and knocks on the door uh, and asks to use the phone. Yes, this is actually <laughs> good reminder because this is the very funny like comedy sequence where the robot hand is the only part that hasn't reattached to the rest of the robot that's hiding in the barn. It's, it's like crawling around the house. It's kind of acting like a dog, like a, like a wayward puppy that you can't control in a lot of ways. At one point it literally like sits and wags w- like its tail, like the wrist connector that kind of looks like the tail. Hogarth dupes the adults and manages to, you know, calm the situation down. And this is where we, where we get him going into the barn and talking to IG and showing him uh, some magazines, some reading material. He brings a mad magazine Uh, the spirit, and then a boy's life, which which he's kind of dismissive of. He's like, eh, boy's life isn't great, but I've got these action comics. And he holds up the classic action comics with Superman on the cover. And he tells the Iron Giant that he is like Superman because Superman crash-landed on Earth, didn't know what he was doing, but he only uses his powers for good, never for evil. Yeah. So... So you, you kind of brought this up before. Do you think this is where, this like from this point forward, the Iron Giant would rescue somebody that, that fell out of a boat or would you know try to help people rather than be apathetic?
1: I th- yeah, I think this is where the reprogramming begins for sure. Thank God this movie was made by Warner Brothers so they could actually use the real Superman. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think this is where the repro- reprogramming begins because there's also the other comic. I don't know if that's a real DC character, Atomo.
0: I was gonna ask you, Atamo the Metal Menace. I'm not sure if that's real. Cause he, he sort sure of that's... pushes the Superman aside and points to the Atamo because I think he sort of identifies with it he he sees himself on that cover quite literally Um, it
1: looks like him um uh, in my studies of of dc comics (laughs) i've never heard of Atomo. i think it's more something that was created for for this movie to, to be like parallel to the iron giant this this big menacing giant robot that destroys everything and then superman and hogarth puts the superman comic on top of Atomo, and then the giant moves the superman comic but Hogarth put Superman back on top yeah. again. Like brilliant, brilliant symbolism, brilliant foreshadowing. Stuff that probably went over my head as a child. But yeah, this idea of you're 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 you can be good. You're going to be good. You can only use your powers for good, and like you have the choice. Yes,
0: it's a tr- yeah. You can break away from your original programming and make and and be your own person, a robot, and make a choice. And I, I like that as a general message. Dean, okay, so then we get a little bit more hijinks because Hogarth realizes he can't keep the Iron Giant in his barn, especially with a government agent sniffing around and and, and catching on to him. We, we get this really fun scene where he blends in with a Cosmo Burger billboard, uh, like he's holding up this giant cheeseburger. Uh, it's, because, it's because Hogarth is trying to feed the Iron Giant. Uh, Hogarth is looking for food for him. He knows that he eats metal. And he's looking for food, and they find this junk car. Uh, Hogarth is is saying, "Yeah, you could probably eat this. It's probably fine. It's been here for like however many years." But at the last second, Dean shows up to haul that junk car back to his back to his junk uh, scrapyard. So they follow,
1: and oh my god, I just realized. Mm-hmm. Some uh, some even more symbolism of this this idea of this like hunk of junk can be repurposed into something beautiful like art is another thing about about the reprogramming what you you're not oh my god reinventing yourself and like the the giant being good wow mm-hmm. it's we and... my room
0: <laughs> <laughs> so we, yeah we see uh, when they when they get to Dean's scrapyard when we see Dean's scrapyard itself this is a really cool setting he's got like this sort of trailer house that he lives in. I also noticed there's a tree house right next to it with like stairs, spiral stairs leading up around the trunk of the tree up to this tree house. Um, he's got all of his art around and this giant barn with even more big artistic sculptures that he's made from, from scrap metal and junk. And uh, this, yeah, this is where we get that, that line because Hogarth comes in, Dean offers him some coffee. Um, <laughs> Hogarth tries to act cool. Like, yeah, I, I drink coffee. I'm, I'm cool. I'm hip. Dean says, are you sure this is espresso? It's like coffeezilla, which I've never heard a better description for, <laughs> for espresso than coffeezilla. Another
1: reference to a giant monster, subtly.
0: And then th- this really fun scene where Ho- Hogarth is talking really fast. He's really wired, he's amped up. He's talking about how he was moved up a grade because he wasn't fitting in. And he complains, I'm not, I'm not uh, these other kids beat him up because, or make fun of him because, you know, he, they think that he's acting like he's smarter than everyone else. Um, but he says, I'm not smarter. I just do the stupid homework. And if everyone else did stupid homework, maybe they'd get moved up too. Is there any more coffee?
1: <laughs> Brilliant scene. Hogarth was the, I don't know if Hogarth was the kid I was at 12 years old, but it's definitely the kid I wanted to be when I was 12. Mm. Or how I okay. saw myself, why I wanted to aspire to be that kid. How I, uh, yeah. What qualities? um well you know especially when i was watching it at the time i felt like i, I was also like a lonely kid with no friends too much energy but didn't know where to thrust my uh, affection my energy my loneliness if i had an iron giant i would probably do that And if my mother allowed pets in the house i'd probably do exactly the same thing that this kid did and i i loved a good coffee let me tell you yeah <laughs> and that way <wit>, yeah.
0: unparalleled <laughs> And it's, it's also like this is where also this is just an interesting detail that's very it's not called out explicitly at any other point in the movie. Hogarth was advanced a grade. He was too smart for whatever yes. the grade he was in. His mom recognized that it, it, it seemed like he was being held back intellectually and not mm-hmm. challenged enough. So he was moved up a grade and that affected his social status because now he's got these bigger kids, not only not only bigger in size, but they're resentful of him. Because he, according to them, you know, he doesn't belong. He's acting like this. He's acting like he's smarter than all of us. He's acting like a smarty pants or this, uh, like he's better than us. Because because mm-hmm. of a decision that wasn't even his. His mom decided for him, and the school decided yeah. for him. Such um, a specific
1: detail to, yeah. to add into this movie.
0: But it tells it tells us not only not only is Hogarth compassionate and a good kid. He's also very very intelligent, even more mm-hmm. intelligent than he himself realizes.
1: Mm-hmm. Like he's
0: intelligent, but he's not arrogant about it. He doesn't He doesn't condescend to other people. He thinks the only reason he is quote unquote smarter is because he does the stupid homework and the other people don't do the stupid homework. Right. So we know that Hogarth is not lazy. That's, yep. and, uh, and that also goes into like his intrepidity. I, I really think intrepid is the best, the best definition of what Hogarth is. Hogarth tries to talk Dean into keeping the Iron Giant at the scrapyard. And Dean says, I can't hide it here. Hogarth says, he, not it. What do you think about that, Gamal? Uh, we had a whole discussion on Pod Queens about robots and gender. So in this, in this little dialogue exchange, Dean is calling the robot it, and Hogarth corrects him, he. And he really underlines that, he, not it. hmm Why do you what think e- that's important?
1: Well, I think there is this thing, when people, especially now are subtly expressing their transphobia, at least. They love to say, like, when someone says, like, my pronouns are not what you might expect, someone might say, oh, whatever your pronouns are, he, she, it, over there. It's this really condescending thing to to just dehumanize someone, right? It's horrible. It's stupid. It's shitty. Why this Iron is a he and a she, I'll never know. Did he get to choose his gender? Who knows? But, um... At the very least, I think it means like don't dehumanize or depersonalize this robe, this person, this giant. It's not this giant is not an it. Right. He is. A, he has a soul. He's not a thing. He's a living, breathing being.
0: Yeah, Hogarth sees it as a friend, as a as a person, uh, and maybe not a human person, but as a being with feelings and 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 awareness and intelligence. And I think you know it's it's very easy as a kid, especially to categorize this thing with a very deep boom, booming voice when it does talk. Sure. And of course, you know it's it's general sort of shape, body shape uh, as a as a he rather than a she. Also, mm. he's he's missing his dad. You know, there's that gap in his life, and the Iron Giant is very much whether Hogarth sees it explicitly as this or not, very much a father figure to him. So. Yeah,
1: that's interesting.
0: But I do think the the importance to Hogarth, the important, dis- the reason he needs to distinguish is to humanize the robot, not to make it like a a he versus a she. But it's like that's not a that's not an object. That's not a statue. That's not a a battery operated thing. It's a being. It's an organ yeah. organism. Yeah. So then uh, we get back to Kent Mansley. I forget where this is happening, but Kent <laughs> Kent Kent is describing why we should be afraid of the Iron Giant. He says, uh, he, he mentions that Sputnik is the first sp- satellite in space. Kent really specifies it's the first foreign satellite. He says, what he knows about the Iron Giant is, um, all I know is we didn't build it. And that's reason enough to assume the worst and blow it to kingdom come.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Which, wow, <laughs> what, a, what a perfect way to encapsulate the, the attitude on both sides of the ocean. During the Cold War, right? All we know is we didn't uh, we didn't build it, so that's reason enough to assume the worst and blow it to kingdom come. Yep. During this time, that's all we were developing, putting our, our developing our, our research and development into is is bigger weapons and more space exploration. We wanted to have control because we didn't know what the other guys were up to, but we assumed that if we let them get ahead, they're going to blow us up. So we got to be able to blow up them up right. first.
1: Such a crazy thing that people would rather fly to space and fly to the moon than guarantee their citizens basic human rights. It's crazy.
0: That's a, okay. That, um, that's an interesting point, Kamal. I <laughs> agree with most of what you're saying. I think space exploration is an important field of research. But yes, mm-hmm. there, I think the, it's an important
1: the, field of research. The impetus
0: behind what was funding space exploration at this time was mm-hmm. maybe not with the best intentions of like science or. Or, you know, finding finding solutions to the world's problems out in space or out in the galaxy. Mm. It's really just control of the atmosphere itself and control of satellites that could wreak havoc and destruction on Terran nations on the Earth. Yeah. Yeah. Gamal. Uh, yeah. I might be skipping over some some sequences of this film, sure. but the next the next scene I really want to dig into is the mm-hmm. hunter scene when Hogarth and the Iron Giant see hunters pursuing a deer. First they see just just a deer out in the wilderness and This deer has no reason to be afraid of the Iron Giant and it approaches him, he gets close to it until the deer hears the snapping of a twig or some noise off in the woods and it runs off. Unfortunately, it runs directly into its own doom and gets shot by these two hunters. And then this this heartbreaking scene where the Iron Giant, who has just had this life-changing experience of seeing a deer for the first time and almost interacting with this beautiful natural creature, he then sees it dead and he sees the guns on the ground that killed it. And I might have the details out of order, but at some point he sort of reaches his very large giant iron finger and taps it. And we see just the limp body of the deer being pushed slightly by the iron giant. It's it's so sad just seeing him look at this thing that was so full of life moments ago and then it's no longer it's it's dead, and he gets really sad. First, he gets kind of, he has this flashback, though. He sees the guns on the ground. He knows, puts the elements together. These guns are what ended this creature's life. And his eyes sort of turn red, and it's it gets a little scary for a second because you don't know, is this triggering something in him? Is he about to go into some sort of, like, weapon mode?
1: Also, oh, my God. This movie's so brilliant. This movie's so brilliant. Yes, you're using the word triggering, this soldier of war being triggered by guns very ptsd i mean you know these are like earthly guns and i wonder if that has something to do with again it's making a commentary on on war and the not too far away world war that just happened. World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, what a brilliant fucking movie! Anyway, can I curse some the show?
0: Uh, you can. It's okay. Yeah. Okay. The yeah, and then man, then we get one of the best conversations in this movie. This is where this is where the the writers are firing on all cylinders. Hogarth is explaining to Ig. Uh, he says things die. It's part of life. He says it's bad to kill. It's not bad to die. Ig responds, "You die." Hogarth says yes. Eventually, I'll die, and then Ig asks, "I die?" Hogarth thinks about that for a moment, and he says, "You're made of metal, but you have feelings, and you think about things, and that means you have a soul, and souls don't die." Uh, there, there's so much <laughs> like essentialism happening here. Yeah. Well, we find out, you know, he got this this sage advice from his mom. He says, "Mom mm-hmm. says it's something inside." Uh, the Iron Giant asks him, "What is a soul?" You know, soul soul. And he says, mom says it's something inside all good things and that it goes on forever and ever. And I just think this is a beautiful description of, of souls, of the difference between something living and something inanimate, you know, like a, like a, do you, like, do you have like a Roomba or any sort of battery operated thing that you interact with or have interacted with that you, you, there's nothing about it that speaks to that, like Pixar or Disney, like part of your brain where you're like, that's a, that's a creature. That's a, that's something I should give a name to. And is my friend. Right. Like, do you have any, do you, can you think of any examples of, of that, that you
1: interact I with? Had, I haven't had anything like that unless you can't like Siri. Okay. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I, I don't have like a Roomba or like an Alexa or something.
0: Do you consider, do you, does
1: Siri have a soul? I don't think so, personally. Okay. I don't think Siri um, has a soul. Why not? Okay, we're getting existential. I just think it's uh, programmed in a way that it's very—it it's, it has no free will. So once it can take over the world, then it has a soul. <laughs> I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. Or, or yeah, or its sole purpose is—it has no real physical form unless you count this like phone. But this phone like does so many other things. And like my phone is not Siri, like Siri is a component of my phone. Whereas like a mm-hmm. Roomba, its job, it it's a whole thing. That's purpose is to to sweep around and that's the purpose of its entire being. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah I I love that I love that Hogarth
0: sees the Iron Giant. Anyway, he sees that this is a creature that's trying to learn, trying to understand. And, he, and the way he describes it as you're made of metal, but you have feelings and you think about things. And that means you have a soul. I think that's a, it's a very childish version of, a, of it, but I think it's a really good definition of what a soul is.
1: I, I think it adds credence to your theory that the father is dead and not just having left, because why would his mother have that conversation really with the... A child in that way. We're getting clues here, Lou, that are adding credence to your theory. Yeah, it's uh, bad to
0: kill. It's not bad to die. And the, you know, obviously, he, like you said, he has he has had to deal with mortality already at some point.
1: And it's this idea that this, like, kind of organic, fleshy being was killed by ostensibly this piece of metal that adds a layer to it's almost like this Hogarth and the giant himself with Hogarth being the deer and the gun being the giant and this thing of one of these is so fragile and one has the capacity to kill yes but doesn't always have
0: to and that comes up again later because somebody describes i think it's Dean describes the iron giant as a weapon he says he's a big gun that walks when and the iron giant hears that and he and he protests he says he's not a gun he actually says i not gun Later, he, he that becomes a more complete sentence, and he says, "I am not a gun." Yeah. So he I'm not is. Not a gun. I'm Superman. Yeah, yeah. The the Iron Giant himself is going on this journey throughout this movie to try to figure out what he is, and we don't yeah. we don't know if that's because he has amnesia and doesn't remember what he's supposed to be, or if maybe, and this is another just fan theory of mine, maybe he was the reason that he is alone, maybe the, the only one of his kind, is because he was cast out. Maybe he he thought differently or acted differently from others of his, his manufacturing line. <laughs> so they either exiled him or he left to go find his own purpose. And who knows? But it, it could also be that he was damaged and he has to sort of reset. But either way, he is trying to make decisions. He's trying to decide for himself what he is. And Hogarth is helping him with that, and, and the bond between the two of them is really beautiful. And it's yeah, it's just like the kind of friendship that makes you like <laughs> really jealous. Like, man, I, I wish I was I wish I was close to anything the way that Hogarth is to this 100 <laughs> foot metal robot.
1: <laughs> Same.
0: All right. So we get uh, shortly after this this deer sequence, beautiful conversation. Kent Manley. Uh, Kent Mansley I've been calling him Manly or Mansley I think there's an S in there Kent Mansley Uh, Yeah I think so Ends up uh, renting the room that's available at the the Hughes home and staying with them and (laughs) and there's this really funny sequence where he's like calling him a bunch of things like buckaroo slugger (laughs) tiger buddy ranger scout champ cowboy
1: yes first of all I loved I love it again the foreshadowing in this movie when he's leaving the first time you see that there's a sign in the window that says room for rent and it's not commented on and I was like I wonder why that's there I wonder if it's gonna come into play that's so specific and it did brilliant but also this idea Mm -hmm. of of this man coming in to kind of become the father figure in his house very interesting one that is kind of not very like you're not my father kind of a deal with this guy coming in Mm -hmm. yep I felt
0: yeah and this guy is nothing but Uh, an intruder he's nothing but a a insidious person Mm -hmm. that is just he's he's really good at that like plastic mannequin smile and that that salesman voice right and sort of telling you what he thinks you want to hear right champ and then and then in the next breath sort of threatening you subtly and then in the next breath directly threatening you and making it clear that he made a threat in case you missed it and Mm -hmm. here's what's actually going to happen if you don't comply Right yeah. sport, <laughs> great great performance by um, what did you say the actor's name was again? Uh, Christopher I, I just McDonald, Sh- Shooter McGavin. Have you seen Happy Gilmore?
1: No, I haven't. No. Oh okay, okay. Uh, Christopher <laughs> McDonald is the actor, though. Yeah, ve- uh, is, is, again, very stepdad thing, like with the the names like Champ and Slugger, and and then no, his mother says, "Why don't you show Kent around the town, see the sights?" See yeah, the sights. <laughs> very <laughs> the sights. like. Uh, very, very. You're not my dad. You're not my father. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. After, after he starts living with him,
0: Kent, uh, <laughs> Kent goes so far as to when he's trying to squeeze Hogarth for information. He knows that he knows that Hogarth has a secret that he's keeping from him, and he's really trying to press him. He's really trying to. Mm-hmm. He tries different strategies to try to appeal to him. Uh, there's this funny sequence where he takes him out for ice cream or for a milkshake or whatever, and then. Uh, Hogarth very cleverly sprinkles X-lax onto the top of his milkshake. And then we get this montage of Kent Mansley needing to use various bathrooms around town, go behind the bushes real quick. But at some point it culminates in him like locking this kid in a barn and chloroforming him, then trapping him in his bedroom and nailing his windows shut. And Kent Mansley becomes terrifying at this point he this uses is while, this phrase a lot where he's like blah 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 and all that that implies
1: mm-hmm. it's very sinister yeah it, creepy i didn't I, I almost didn't believe that he chloroformed the kid and i was like what happened to this kid really mature for a kid and that was a very mature scene the chloroforming is a very mature scene <laughs> uh very mature points in this movie very dark yep Ken this is all does, the while the giant is with Dean, right in the junkyard.
0: That's right. Yeah, and Kent eventually gets enough evidence that he convinces General Regard. I forget exactly what it is, but but there is a scene, there is a scene where they they decide to go to the lake to try to be inconspicuous, and mm-hmm. uh, the Iron Giant jumps into the lake and displaces all of the water, and it and it nearly floods the rest of the town. <laughs> but it's 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 a shocking and kind of funny. Thing throughout this movie theme throughout this movie that the iron this literally 100 foot tall being this metal loud clanging stomping creature that probably shakes the ground when it walks is able to just hide very casually all over the place all over this town and pop up out of nowhere and surprise people but yeah they finally Kent gathers enough evidence and convinces uh, the dad from Fraser, General Rogard (laughs) to send the army to Rockwell, Maine and they show up Dean has very cleverly put a bunch of de- like other junk and decorations and art all over the Iron Giant to make it look like just a huge art installation that he's building, and it convinces the army uh, so much so that they, you know, they they apologize. They take Mrs. Hughes, they take Hogarth's mom in their truck and drive her home, and she leaves. She just leaves Hogarth at the junkyard <laughs> when the yeah. army drives her home, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> Shortly after this, it, it, it all goes wrong because Hogarth is playing with the Iron Giant and has this ray gun that he starts pointing at it. And it has the same effect as, as when IG saw the hunter's guns on the ground. On the ground it triggered, it made, it made his eyes go red and it triggered some sort of defense response or some sort of protocol in him. But this time he actually produces one of his weapons. I think it's like his eye beams or one of his arms turns into a laser gun or a ray gun and and almost blasts Hogarth's head off. <laughs> Dean Dean gets really scared when this happens because, I mean, Hogarth almost dies. And um, so he yells. Actually, this is the line that I was talking about earlier. Yeah, this is when Dean yells at the Iron Giant, gets it to run away, and he tells Hogarth it's dangerous. He's a weapon. He's a big gun that walks. The giant is, as he's running away... He sees these two kids, they're playing too close to a, a balcony edge. They fall They fall off and they're going to fall and die. And if not for the Iron Giant, coming into the middle of the town, exposing himself to the, all the townspeople and saving these two kids, he rescues them. Mm-hmm. So this whole town sees this hero action from the Iron Giant, but then the army shows up to, ch- to chase it around and, and threaten it. And we get this amazing, amazing sequence of the Iron Giant walking in the snow. It's, it's, it reminds me very much of Frankenstein for some reason. The book, the Frankenstein, have you read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein?
1: Yeah. So you know how there's
0: the 10th grade. Do you know how there's this this whole part where the, the monster goes, goes to, I think Antarctica or somewhere, some desolate, cold. like cold Arctic wasteland to be alone and to, and to sort of search for his purpose. He goes to search for himself. And there's these beautiful shots of just the Iron Giant walking along this pastoral landscape that's covered in snow. Dean is very recklessly riding his motorcycle around the icy roads or huh? the snowy roads. Yeah. This is when eventually the army is chasing, chasing the Iron Giant out to sort of the edge of town, to the port, to the dock. And Mansley wants to use the bomb. Uh, he tells the general that the, the Nautilus is nearby. The army is throwing all of their weapons, all of their, their jeeps and tanks that showed up in, in the small town in Maine. They're firing everything that they have at this at this thing, and it's, it's not doing any damage. So Gamal, I have a question. Do, yeah. you think, do you think that the iron giant is actually made of iron, or do you think he's... We just call him that because it, you know, it's an easy, it's an easy name, but we don't know what actual metal, what
1: kind of space metal he's made from. I do think it's space metal because it, the way it like transforms and, and morphs, I think it's very space metal. I think so too. Also
0: just the fact that our, our conventional weapons do literally nothing to him. Right. Which if he was made of iron, even if it's very thick iron, he'd be dented or blasted to pieces. Interesting uh, uh, contradiction to that. A train is enough. To blast him into pe- into multiple pieces, <laughs> the That's true. impact of a, of a freight train. But um, you know, the, all of these tanks and jeeps and machine guns firing at him do literally nothing.
1: Well, I think that goes back to the ending. I wonder if that that train scene was a late addition to mm. when they that when they. I think. Uh, and forgive me if I'm getting ahead of myself. I have a feeling that the ending that we got for the movie wasn't originally planned. But because it's a kids' movie, they were like, we should make it so that the giants like alive so they introduced this feature where like if he breaks apart he can put himself back together which is why maybe the train was enough to break him apart even though like more conventional methods like the um i don't know or maybe not maybe maybe i don't know
0: yeah it also could be like he wasn't expecting to get injured by the the train so maybe he didn't like brace himself or maybe he has some sort of automatic defensive like Deflector shield or something that we don't see, yeah. like an invisible force field that that's blocking all the bullets. I,
1: I suspend my disbelief.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, we do see some of the weapons that he is built with, though. Yes, we see him break out
1: this um, after his dent goes 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 normal.
0: Yeah, yeah. We see uh, when he when he's getting attacked by all these army vehicles. There's one weapon he fires that's like this yellow ball of energy, and it lifts up a tank, and then the tank, the whole tank, just disappears. Into nowhere, he has this thing that comes out of his right arm that's like a triple disintegration ray. Oh no, that actually comes out of his head. It's like these weird War of the Worlds looking things with tentacles, and they're firing blasts with disintegration rays. One of his arms is just a blaster arm. One of them looks like I, I just I wrote down electro spinner. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> uh, so and then so. he's got this like like Iron Man, like Tony Stark, this chest unibeam that he fires out at some point. Clearly, clearly for all of the gentleness for all of the 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 things that Hogarth has seen in the Iron Giant so far that that we as viewers as compassionate viewers have seen in the Iron Giant for all of his good this is where we we see just how dangerous he has the potential to be so i mean this confirms that that whatever built or created or birthed the Iron Giant did made made him capable of war made him capable of of terrible destruction yeah and it's yeah I, th- I think i think it just implies a whole other universe outside of our planet we you know we don't know what he dealt with what his kind dealt with what they were defending themselves from we don't know if they're invaders and you know all, also the movie the, especially like the kent mansley's and the john mahoney's are assuming that it's not from space this is a this is a secret weapon developed by the Russians, and they put all these weapons, they built all these weapons to, to be something that would come here to America and kill us and attack us.
1: Which I love. It's crazy that they think that the Russians could build all this, like, advanced alien disintegration technology, you know, hey. Well, they they assume so because they don't know how far ahead
0: of us they are technolo- technologically wise, but they do know that they got a, a probe out into space first. Uh, right. The first foreign... Uh, satellite is in space. So they was know there, that they meet up there.
1: Was there an American satellite out in space before, before that one?
0: No, the, Russian, the Russians were first. They were um, first. Oh, wow. Let me just confirm that real quick. but no. Okay.
1: No.
0: <laughs> Yeah, the first artif- Sputnik 1 was the first artificial Earth satellite, and the Soviet, wow. uh, un- Soviet Union launched it in October of 1957. So that also gives wow. us like a little bit, that also explains why it was snowing during the sequence because it's it's sometime after October 57. We know that the year is 57. Um, so this Doesn't is sometime after off, yeah. October. Right, but we know from from this detail that it's either, you know, late October, like, November, mm-hmm. or December, a time yeah. that it would snow in Maine. <laughs>
1: right, 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 right. Yeah, how interesting. I love that. Yeah. Specific, uh, but yeah, I,
0: I think that's what leads them to believe that this could have been Created by the Russians because who knows if they got a if they got a satellite into space before us who knows what kind of weapons or giant robots they could be building over there right and sending to destroy us. General Rogard calls up the Nautilus, which is a real submarine, and Mansley wants to use the bomb. The bomb that he's referring to is a SLBM, uh, and I know that because when they go into the submarine when they're getting their communication from the general, there is th- there's somebody that is like. Flicking all these switches on a on a panel. And the very last one says uh, SLBM, which stands for submarine launched ballistic missile, um, which is a very, very real thing. Is so it like a actually, nuclear weapon? It is. This is oh my God. Yeah, I think I think this is where I can sort of talk about submarines a little bit. <laughs> Bless. Let's go. So a submarine launched ballistic missile. Not every not every submarine has these. Our current naval fleet, I should, I should amend that. The naval fleet when I was serving, which was in the mid-2000s, I was in the service from 2004 to 2009. Back then, we had three types of submarines. Fast attack, which is the type of ship I was on. Fast attack submarine pretty much does patrols, does surveillance, we use our periscope to take pictures of things that we're keeping an eye on, and we patrol certain waters to detect certain things that we're looking out for. But it it is not really designed for like mass destruction the way that submarines that carry SLBMs are. A fast attack submarine is more for like patrolling and, and spy missions. And then if they are attached to a fleet, they sort of are the like the, the ninjas under the water, keeping the fleet safe by, you know, if anything does attack the fleet, they have this undetected war machine underneath that can retaliate and take mm-hmm. them out. So that's what a fast attack sub does. Then there are what's co- what we call boomers. So a boomer is a much larger submarine. And it carries these these inter inter. We now have intercontinental submarine launched ballistic missiles. So back then they were just SLBMs. Now I think they're called ISLbMs or SLIBMs. Or there's an I in the in the acronym somewhere because now they're capable of of being launched intercontinentally. Are they like tracking? Like how does it work? Tracking tracking what? How do, how can you send it intercontinentally? Well, so back so back in the fifth in reveal the secrets. In 57, the Mansley calls out that they're they're able to use the bomb because the Nautilus is just offshore. So I'm assuming that it's it's I think Banger Maine is where our submarine base is. I could verify that, but I'm not going to. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, but either way, this sub has to be off the coast in order for its missile to reach the target, the Iron Giant, which is the target. So it has to be at least that close. Our missile technology at this point is such that. That submarine could be off the coast of Maine and it could fire a missile all the way to Taiwan, you know, or Europe. It could, it could fire one all the way to Scotland if it wanted to from the West Coast. There is, I'm pretty sure uh, oh there, is no, <laughs> there is no spot on the earth that we could not fire a missile from and then hit whatever other spot we want to. Wow! Um, I will say this, what what we built those submarines for and what we use them for currently is what we call strategic deterrence. We let other countries know we have these things out there somewhere in the ocean. You'll never find them and you'll never know if we're going to use them or when we're going to use them. So please don't mess with our country <laughs> or else we might turn this this weapon of mass destruction against you. But, uh, you know, otherwise it's just a, a idle threat. It's just a thing that is there it's kind of like the iron giant it's mm. just it's capable of massive destruction but we're just put sort of putting it out there in front of you and you know you re,
1: you respond as you will
0: <laughs> well wow. yeah in many ways we're still in the cold war
1: uh <laughs> <laughs> so this thing what would happen if this this specific missile to your knowledge exploded like what 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 damage would it do
0: Oh, all of Rockwell, Maine would be uh, would be gone, and 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 it seems like such a small town that like probably whatever whatever town also shares like a zip code with it <laughs> would probably That's also bad. be wiped off, off of the map of Maine. It would it would definitely be a atomic weapon, so the fallout would also be devastating to the entire Northeast region. The it, wow. yeah, it would just be bad for because you know the nature of storms, nor'easters, they start up in Maine and they start heading down south, so the just the blowback from the nuclear fallout would be devastating to the entire East Coast. Wow. But this army, uh, this general, is willing to, well, at least Kent Mansley, is willing to take that risk. He's willing to do that.
1: So stupid.
0: <laughs> Very stupid. He actually doesn't even seem to think about the fact that the missile will kill him, him as well until... General Rogard points that out and then he panics and he tries to escape. But, you know, what's what's funny about that is most of the townspeople, when when the missile is launched and it's up in the sky and everybody realizes, like, we have minutes until this thing comes down, crashing on us and blowing us all up. Most of the townspeople aren't really like panicking or running around or, you know, trying to escape. They seem to very quickly accept the inevitability of this. Why do you think that is?
1: I think, I mean, especially then, if, you know, I mentioned earlier that the Twilight Zone was always talking about, like, nuclear war, nuclear fallout, and the Cold War, and distrust. That was not something that the Twilight Zone, like, originated. Like, that thought was in the minds of everyone at all times, and in some ways I think still is. But, you know, I think there that reality has been had been normalized. It mm-hmm. hadn't been too long after World War II, in the grand scheme of things, what like 10, 11 years since the, f- the first atomic weapons were used. And even throughout this movie, you see them watching videos in school, like preparing them for for like what you do, get under a desk or whatever. Exactly. And the animation, the animation shows like the kid gets under a desk and it destroys everything <laughs> around them but the desk <laughs> and the child. Mm-hmm, that's how it works. But you know, this is a a society of people who this has been normalized and, and has been like a fear but also like a, a possible impending reality that they've been terrified of and preparing for but even times when they said like let there's a fallout shelter like let's go to the fallout shelter saying like it would be no use yep yeah why is that why why is why is what why would the fallout shelter be, be no use to them Oh, because
0: well, for one thing, they it, let's say it's well stocked and it's airtight, so that the the nuclear radiation doesn't leak inside and kill them that way. I guess it would. I guess it might save them, but they'd have to be able to to generate their own breathable air, potable water. They'd have to either be growing food or have enough like rations and dehydrated food down there to survive for for literally like an entire generation before the half-life of the nuclear winter, the nuclear fallout is safe enough for them to exit the fallout shelter. So it might, it might save them from the blast itself, especially if it's underground, but it's the after effects of the bomb that will kill everything in the, in the whole surrounding area. Wow. I mean, we, we were both alive during the Fukushima reactor meltdown in Japan. So 2011. What? Um, I truly don't remember this What? <laughs> Oh, okay. Uh, Yeah, there was a there was an earthquake and a tsunami, and yeah, it was the most the biggest disaster in like nuclear power plant disasters since Chernobyl in nineteen eighty six. Yeah, basically there was like a an earthquake and a tsunami. It shut down the. I'm not sure how it happened, but the fission reactor got shut down and and was no and it ran rampant and a lot of the water, a lot of the coastal water around it was con- completely radiated. So there was this national cleanup effort. And this is actually an interesting thing about society where the the elderly in Japan volunteered to be like the first responders for the, for the Fukushima reactor cleanup method because they knew that whoever goes and no matter how much protection gear you're wearing, um, when you're waiting in those radiated waters, you're going to be exposed and it's going to shorten your life. Wow. So, the elderly of, of the part of society in Japan decided to, they volunteered themselves to be the ones to go take care of this. We'll, you know, do this wow. for the future generations of our country. That would uh, never happen in America. Exactly. Never, ever. Never ever. happen in
1: America. Yep. Uh, <sighs> yeah. <laughs> it's a matter of morals when you look at it. Like, who has the better morals and who has the better, like, honor? Who's more yeah, we, honorable? As a we society? can't even. Convince people to wear masks during a pandemic.
0: Uh, by the way, if you're listening and you're not wearing a mask, please put a mask on.
1: Please yeah. put a mask
0: on. Do it for me. Yeah. Unless, unless you're at home by yourself listening to this, then you don't yeah, have yeah. to wear a
1: mask. If you're um, at home, you don't wear a mask. But if you're going somewhere, wear a mask, please. Come on, um, please. So, so yes. Yeah, so that 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 damage would would be great. You're saying.
0: Yeah. It's me. it's because you can survive the blast if you're in, if you're in a protected. Underground bunker, you could definitely survive the blast itself. You, another complication, though, is like whatever buildings were destroyed around you are going to be however many feet of rubble that you'd have to dig mm-hmm. through when you got out of the shelter. So that's another complication. Jesus so Christ. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah, we, you know, we put a lot of the, a lot of small towns ha- still have those fallout shelters and they are just as useless as they were when they were built because they were just meant to be a, there's probably a word for this, but like a, a, a placating tactic, yeah. just there to placate people, make you feel better, help you sleep at night. You have yeah. it in case you need it, but we'll never need it because we're just going to build bigger guns and wipe them off the map before they wipe off wipe us off the map. Crazy. So that's what the government in this movie tries to do, or Kent Mansley, agent of the government, tries to do, in his in as many many series series of many foolish decisions. Hogarth sees the Iron Giant responding to all of this aggression against him and you know all of these, these attacks. Ho, uh, the Iron Giant is about to go ham on the army <laughs> and bust out all of his weapons and take them all out. And Hogarth gets in front of him and tells him, he reminds him, it's bad to kill. Guns kill. And you don't have to be a gun. You are what you choose to be. You choose. Choose. And the Iron Giant does choose, and what choice does he make, Gamal? He he
1: doesn't. He doesn't kill Hogarth. It's revealed to the army that the child is still alive because Kent Mansley lied and I'm said that he that. killed that the giant killed the child.
0: God, the depths uh, of
1: depravity that Kent Mansley <laughs> sings horrible, to. horrible man, a horrible man. Uh, i wonder I wonder at what point uh you know, and of course, i might have to suspend my disbelief why why he cares so much mm-hmm. to 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 ruin this why Kent Mansley himself has such a vested interest in eradicating this creature and using the the extent of the military's nuclear weapons on this creature that's an interesting question. What do you think it is? I don't know. I mean, maybe it has to do with this idea of like heroism. He wants to be the hero or something, but I think it's like a, it comes from selfishness, not an actual desire to be, to help, but a desire to be seen as the hero rather than actually be the hero.
0: Yeah. This
1: goes into the Superman imagery as well. The general, the general definitely makes,
0: makes a comment about Kent's attachment, his, his, his status in the military itself. And it's a condescending, I forget exactly what he says, but it's a condescending comment that's meant to make Kent Mansley feel kind of insecure about it because he is really feeling himself. He thinks he's very important. He thinks he's a hero to the U.S. and and to the whole country. But, But General Rogard sort of calls him out on that. I think Kent is not a veteran of World War II And Mm. I I think he kind of feels this uh, inferiority complex, and so yeah, I think you're right that he's like trying. He's trying to to prove himself
1: in some way. He's trying to get this big feather in his cap to prove to the world Mm. that he is a hero. Um, Interesting. He 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 didn't fight in the war, so he wanted to bring the war home so he could be a foot soldier in it. Yeah, and it's twelve
0: years after the war. Ken Mansley does. He is a young man. He could be in his twenties. So it's possible that he was too young. To enlist Possibly. in the war, and now, like maybe, maybe from his perspective, the war ended before I had a chance for glory, and this mm-hmm. is my chance now to 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 make to make my mark on history. But Possibly, yeah. it leads to a lot of foolish, irrational decisions. The he does fire the, the he does get the sub to fire the inter, the submarine launched ballistic missile at the town, and the Iron Giant takes off into the sky to go stop it. And just before he does, Hogarth says the last thing that he says to him, which is, I love you. And even for a for a, for a kid's movie, I wasn't expecting that. That I can't think of of a kid's movie where, where it's explicitly set, where the kid says to his new friend by the end of the movie, his new fantastical friend being that he's, that he's made throughout the movie,
1: I love you, at the end of it. Especially a boy, if you mm-hmm. want to dig into that a little bit. <laughs> Absolutely well, sure, of course, you know gender roles and little mm-hmm. boys can have, but I think it speaks more to your um your your father comments of the iron giant being a, in place of his father, and if Hogarth's father actually died fighting in a war, so does the iron giant. Mm-hmm. He dies fighting to protect Hogarth in in a battle in one way or another, maybe his father did too, technically dying to protect Hogarth in you know some way, uh, protecting his country, so to speak, and that I love you, maybe extends to the giant, of course, but maybe to his memories of his father or his, his lack of memories. And through the Iron Giant, he was able to figure out what it might have been like to have a father in some way.
0: Yeah. And, and I wonder if there's part of him that knows whatever, whatever happened to his father, Hogarth didn't get the chance to say I love you to him one last time
1: before he died. So, and, and there's this thing of like, imagine like anything that the giant does, you could easily graft onto this child's father. If he was in the war... And he disappeared and something happened and he got amnesia and came back, saw his child, had to relearn how to be a person, how to, re- how to relearn how to not be a, a war machine, how to deal with his being triggered by the sight of guns.
0: Yeah. And, and Hogarth is definitely a smart kid. He's savvy. He gets it. He, he can tell what's going to happen here. He can tell the Iron Giant's going to go stop this missile, but is probably not coming back. So mm-hmm. he just won't miss the opportunity to tell him, I love you. Before he goes and sacrifices himself, yeah. and it's really beautiful. It's very, it's very unexpected, even for like this kind of movie with this kind of message. It's, it's just like to explicitly have that called out, to have him say uh, those three words to the robot. Uh, yeah. I, I, I think it just can't be overstated how much of a, how much that that makes this movie unique and makes it like you were saying Oscar worthy. It's truly Oscar worthy. The giant does. He he pulls an Iron Man at the end of uh, the Avengers movie, the first Avengers movie, mm. right? He, he uses his rocket boots and flies off into the atmosphere, grabs the missile itself, flies it into space. In the Avengers, of course, Tony Stark flew it through a wormhole, but uh, the Iron Giant doesn't have a wormhole to fly it through. So... He takes the full force of the blast and we find out later that his pieces are scattered all over Iceland, the Langjökull glacier in Iceland, except for one, except for the the one headbolt that ends up being sent to Hogarth by General General Rogard. A few months um,
1: later, right? because there's no snow. it looks a lot like spring in there. Mm, yeah,
0: yeah, that's a good um, point that the snow is all melted. I didn't notice that yeah.
1: yeah and then. Because also his mother, Annie, has started a relationship basically with Dean. Mm-hmm. It's implied that they're, they're dating, kind of.
0: Yeah, we get that little bit of uh, exchange bef- between them earlier where she's commenting on his art and saying mm-hmm. which pieces she likes and doesn't like. Yeah. The town of Rockwell has, has made this, like, rocky statue for <laughs> the Iron Giant. Um, yeah. It's really cool. Do you know, how far along into planning a sequel do you, do you know that, they, that Warner Brothers ever got? Like, do you know any, anything about...
1: What story uh, from, they were
0: going to tell after this, or or why it, like, oh, obviously it didn't do financially well, but like, do you have mm-hmm. any idea of what direction they wanted to take this in?
1: I don't think a sequel was originally planned, to be honest. Okay. I think it was just something that fans came up to them afterwards requesting a, a sequel, of the possibility of a sequel, no, he cons- you. Apparently, according to the Wikipedia article, the great book, Bird stated that when questioned over social media if there was a possibility of a sequel, Bird stated that because the film was considered a financial flop, a sequel was not likely to ever happen, but also stressed that he considered the story of the Iron Giant to be completely self-contained in the film and saw no need for extending the story. And I kind of agree with. I kind of agree with that. Horde
0: agree, yeah, definitely, hundred percent. In fact, um, like we were talking about earlier, I I kind of would have liked the movie to end about three
1: minutes earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh Yeah, I don't quite enjoy the fact that we got. Look, I understand it's a kids' movie. It is a kids' movie, and for as dark as this movie is, like, I think it was important. I think maybe that was a kind of a Warner Brothers thing of like, you have to be, you have to make it clear that the giant did not die because this is a kids' movie, and he's our main character, kind of and the kids will be too sad. I get it. However, my adult brain, when I saw the blast, because they had foreshadowed the fact that he he can put himself together, I did think, when I was watching the statue having it put up and him going back home and this new life, I was like, it's entirely possible that the giant survived this. But maybe he just never never returns to maine or maybe he goes somewhere else maybe he never returns to earth but i'm but it, it was possible in my mind that he survived anyway mm-hmm. and i kind of like that ambiguity and to have gotten an answer achievement it a little bit for me i would have i actually would have not liked to know yeah we and we get
0: this frankenstein ending where he's just walking through this glacier alone and and you know the final head bolt is is moving towards him gradually, but yeah i I would have either liked it to end you know, just after he gets blown up and and we see what the how the town is now changed because of these events, I would have liked that, or even if it ended just at the point where the bolt activates, rolls itself out the window, and we just see it rolling off into the distance, and even that would be like a little bit ambiguous. But yeah, I guess I, I think you're right that it was probably like a thing where, okay, we have to make it a little more obvious to kids like and, and explicit sure. this hero, this this lovable character did end up surviving. But it's I mean it's a be- it's a beautiful movie. I think it has a lot of beautiful messages in it. I absolutely have only seen it twice. I've only seen it when that first time when I didn't watch this ending. And, and, and now again, a couple of days ago, have you seen this movie a lot? Have you seen it like several times or are you, is this um, movie I you definitely watched like over and
1: over and over? I might have watched it a couple of times when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. I, I definitely watched it when I was a child, at least once. And I watched it again this weekend. So I watched it at least twice, maybe three times, maybe four, okay. uh, but not over and over again. I don't think when I was a kid, it was a movie that I returned to and thought like, I gotta watch this movie again. I, I, I did come into contact with it at least once, enough that so many of the, a lot of the images still like, stuck with me. Like when I was watching the movie again, even when I, when I watched the trailer for it, when I first told you I wanted to, to do the Iron Giant, mm-hmm. I was like, oh yeah, I remember that, that image, and I remember that moment and that, that idea and that voice, and that, there, were, there were things that, that still stuck in my mind.: Yeah. Because this movie was so unique. Even as a child, I realized how unique it was. And maybe I didn't love it as much because I think it was a, a little above my head. It went a little over my head, some of the themes. It still, it still managed to stick with me at mm. times. Yeah, and, and again, looking back at it now... I mean, just, just picking apart the masterful way that the, the script is written and the movie is composed and the moving parts and the imagery and the subtle things and the, the symbolism, the Twilight Zone episodes, the Superman, the, the instances of the Cold War, all, all these little little tiny things, all the clues that you picked up on that, that, that related the Iron Giant to, to Hogarth's actual father. I mean, brilliant stuff, mm-hmm. brilliant stuff that all went over really my head as a child.
0: Also, what distinguishes it from Disney is, like, every Disney main protagonist is, what, like, 16, 17, right?
1: Pretty old. This movie yeah.
0: has no teenagers. It's just kids and adults.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's just an interesting little, like, random detail that I noticed, but it does distinguish it from from Disney movies, <laughs> which it needs to. It really kind of, especially in 99, it needed to. And I think it did successfully. Uh, well, not financially successfully, but as a piece of art, as a, piece, as a beautiful film that really stands the test of time, I think it's successful for a lot of reasons. I agree. Gamal, there's a question that I ask every guest that I didn't ask at the beginning, but we talked about it a lot. But I want to ask you explicitly. Yeah. What is a robot?
1: Oh, sure, 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 That's a great question. I think we talked about it on our episode of Pod Queens, too. And I've completely forgot the answer I gave there. So this is great. Well, a robot is artificial intelligence, right? Artificial intelligence is something that we... Built, we create that, or well, or someone creates a, an an organic being created creates a, an artificial intelligent, artificially intelligent being, maybe made out of metal, maybe whatever that is capable of communication, interaction, some some form of autonomy. Okay, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Is so. Is is the Iron Giant a robot? Totally. Okay, totally. Yeah, he's intelligent. He's was created by someone, and he has all these features. And he's, he, uh, Did I say autonomous? He is autonomous. So he becomes more autonomous throughout this movie. I okay, think. okay. So autonomy, autonomy is like a is an important factor, right? Kind of, I think. In some, to some degree, like a Roomba is autonomous in some way, although it still does whatever you tell it to.
0: Yeah. 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 It sort of follows like an if then protocol
1: list. Of, right. But it's not like this bottle, this bottle of like okay, fiber supplements. I just held up this bottle. Like it won't move. It, it has no autonomy. Like even if I tell it to move, it will not move. I need to physically move it.
0: Yes, it is. It's truly inanimate. Uh, unless yes. of course it's spirited by some sort of like castle magic, like in beauty and yeah. the beast. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. For in, in, in like the sci-fi context, especially the cinematic context I think a robot needs to be animated in some way. It needs to have quote-unquote life of some sort, mm-hmm. visible life. Would you say that this movie is a plus mm-hmm. one, neutral, or minus one
1: for robots? As in how? In the grand scheme of things? I think I think, it, think? I, I think it progresses robot kind in the grand scheme mm, of okay. things. Yeah, because I mean, there is this idea that like this this fear that a lot of people have, especially in sci-fi, you know, that idea that robots will kill all, robots will take over the world, and robot. I mean, it's it's something that's so often returned to. Watch any episode of Black Mirror, and you'll see how uncreative they can be. Oops. Um, the uh, the I, this movie kind of combats that in some way and says, well, you know, robots potentially have as much free will as you or I. We're all programmed to some degree and we can be reprogrammed. We're not, we're not stuck in our one way of thinking. I mean, mm. everyone has the capacity to grow and change and be better and learn. And this robot can in this movie and does. So I think that's a plus one, definitely a progression. And it's definitely kind of um, fighting against the stereotype to some degree. I agree.
0: I I like that that's the direction you took it in. I I like to leave that question a little bit ambiguous for for however the guest wants to interpret. What does plus one or minus one mean? Because in some ways... I agree with everything that you said. And for the same reasons, I would give this a plus one. I would also, if we were talking about just, is this a cool movie robot? Is it cool and like awesome and would be a, a fun action figure? Yeah, definitely a plus one in that cool, category yeah. too. So I think this is a solid, solid robo film. Robo fans, you should definitely check out The, the Iron Giant if you have not seen it yet. Gamal, I have two bonus questions. Ooh. And we will be, we will wrap up. I love My it. First... Bonus question, Gamal, Yes, this is a section of the podcast that we like to call, what's your snack? Gamal, what's your snack? When you used to go to movie theaters before the pandemic, did you have a favorite, are you like a popcorn person? Do you have a favorite movie snack? And, And second part, now that we're watching movies at home until theaters reopen or are safe to go back to, do you recreate your movie experience at home in any way with snacks?
1: The minute you explained that, I was like, oh yes, my snack is cookie dough bites. Mm. I love getting the boxes of cookie dough bites at the movie theater. It's one of the only things I really actually buy when I go to the movie theaters, it's the cookie dough bites. Cause I don't you know, I'll get like a bottle of water from the Dwayne Reed, sneak it in, or whatever. Uh, well, for the longest time, I don't know. I think now you could probably get them somewhere else, like in the stores, but you couldn't get those like cookie dough bite candies anywhere about the movies at least mm-hmm. I couldn't find them anywhere about the movies. so whenever I went to the movies it was the time I could get I could finally get those cookie dough bites so that's something that happened when I was a kid I still to this day though whenever I go to the movies I will grab a box of cookie dough bites or at least most of the time it makes me feel happy
0: do you ever find yourself when you're like, I know I'm going to be watching a movie at home later tonight, and you're like at a Dwayne Reed or something? Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you find yourself saying, I'm going to get some cookie dough bites for later on when I watch that movie?
1: I haven't so far. I might go out and look for some to see if they, I'm sure I could find them in the store now. But I don't often. No, my often my at home go to snack is Oreos. Oreos is the way to my heart. Okay. Okay. I love a good Oreo. I have historically
0: always said popcorn is my movie snack. And it is Mm. what I'm, what I'm realizing though, because it's been so long since I've actually had this experience and I miss it. So I think about it a lot is Mm. it's, it's popcorn and soda. I don't want Mm. popcorn and water and I don't want some other snack and a soda. I want the popcorn and the soda. (laughs) That's the experience. Yeah. Yeah. Gamal, I have one more bonus question. Lay it on me. If we were to, replace any of the two actors in this film, the Iron Giant, with Whoopi Goldberg and Danny DeVito? Oh, what God is bless. your recasting of the Iron Giant?
1: Mm-hmm. Kent Mansley, voiced by Danny DeVito. 100%. Yeah, I mean, that's a perfect role for, for, for him. Um, and it would, I think, would really be, uh, I don't think it would lose anything. I, I don't know that it would enhance it necessarily, because Christopher McDonald did a great job, but I think it would be an equally valid, very different take on the character. As for Whoopi Goldberg, hmm... Hmm. Not a lot of female characters in this movie. Sadly, no. Yeah, Sadly it doesn't no. ha- pass the Bechdel test. No, it doesn't. Uh, but maybe I would maybe I would be crazy and have her play Dean. So I think that's okay. a character that's kind of a paraly. Okay. That'd be interesting.
0: I oh yeah. yeah I like that. So yeah, yeah, how would that change? How would that change Dean? How would that um I don't think very much, honestly? For, I think at the how core, it, I think
1: yeah. I think if it, you know, obviously like you'd probably well. Maybe you don't have to, but you'd probably change the character to be like a black woman. But I think the mechanics of the character, the dean, would be almost exactly identical, just in a different uh, different form. Yeah, there will be an artist. I think Whoopi Goldberg could play that character. I think it's our type of a role. Yeah, Especially it would be def- like
0: ghost or something. It would definitely, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm of the opinion that Whoopi Goldberg can play anything. She's an egod, mm-hmm. after all, uh, EGOT re- recipient. Uh, yeah, th- th- I didn't think about, like, the added layer of Dean is already an outcast, and if this character was a Black woman in 1957, and mm-hmm. also, you know, beatnik a scrapper that lives in, like, his junk her junkyard on the edge of town, mm-hmm. how much of an outsider she would be in this New England
1: town. So that would I be a, of- another layer to it. I think if ever we do the, the, the Broadway musical, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cast Gene as a black woman.
0: Yeah. I'm going to, uh, so after, after this is over, I'm going to call up Warner brothers and Whoopi Goldberg's yeah. agent. We're going to make this, we're going to make this happen. Thank you so much. I'm happy. Uh, I'm and also Danny DeVito's you. agent, of course. Yes. Sir, sir. Uh, <laughs> those are excellent recasting choices. I, I, I don't have any notes actually. I wouldn't, I can't think of any, any other version of this movie because I don't want to lose Vin Diesel either. I think he's just <laughs> perfect for IG. Yeah. I wrote down, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna read these off if you don't mind. This is more, this huh. is kind of self-indulgent. <laughs> but, yeah, But I wrote down every single one of the Iron Giants lines. Ah! So, <laughs> first line, blah, blah, blah. Rock, rock, tree, Superman. Dean, art, deer, dead. Why, you die, I die? Soul. Souls don't die. No, Atamo. I, Superman. No, Sop. I, I not gun. I am not a gun. No, no, Hogarth. Which, it's very late in the movie, the first time Iron Giant says uh, the boy's name, Hogarth. Later on, I'll fix. And then, uh, oh, another one is Superman, but... Then there is the line that I think I think most people associate this movie with, with this this particular line. Do you know what line I'm talking about? Come on, I don't. Go ahead, tell me. It's okay. I'll edit that out, and I'm going to feed it to you because okay. uh, as soon as I say it, you're going to know it. You stay, I go. Yes. No following. I do, kn- I do know the line you're talking about, Lou. You do? Come on. What is, what, is, what is the big line that Iron Giant has at the end of this movie? You stay, I go, no following. Ugh, it's a heartbreaker. It's a heartbreaker, right? Yeah. Wow. And that's what you hire Vin
1: Diesel for, is like, just boop, 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 boop. You know he had like, at max, two sessions. One to lay down all the lines, and one for pickups if they were needed. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is the same as we are Groot, right? Yeah. We are grouped. It's, it's perfect.
0: No notes. Like I wouldn't yeah. add or s- subtract anything to you stay, I go. Almost everybody that I've ever talked to about this movie just pulls that quote out of their back pocket so quickly because it's so memorable. It's such a, it's, it's so impactful.
1: And then again, something that was foreshadowed earlier because Hogarth said that to him.
0: Yeah, yeah, he did. I forgot, he, when, when did he say that to him?
1: When, when he was going to, to his house, right before the train crash, he told the giant, you gotta stay. No, you stay, I go. I'll come back tomorrow. Mm. yep. With less than 20
0: lines in the whole entire movie, this character is just still like so memorable, so stark, uh, that's not a pun. I wasn't trying to be cute because Iron Man, Tony Stark, whatever. <laughs> it, it happened anyway. <laughs> Gamal. That is, every, that is everything I have to say about The Iron Giant. Do you have any final thoughts about this beautiful, wonderful movie before we wrap up today?
1: A fantastic film. If you haven't seen it, please watch it. And Robbed, Robbed film should have been nominated for an Oscar. 100%. Gamal,
0: thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for being a guest on Robots vs. Dinosaurs. Uh, listeners, coming up, I'm going to have more of the hosts from Pod Queens on our show. We're going to have... Saja Wade, as well as Jelani Carrington on some future episodes coming down the pipeline. So make sure you subscribe to Pod Queen so you can listen to their show and stay tuned for more episodes of Robots vs. Giants featuring the wonderful hosts of Pod Queens. Gamal, thank you so much. You're wonderful. I never know how to end this.
1: I (laughs) never know what the last thing is is to say. So I'm going to let you say the last thing. Thank you, Lou. I'm going to sign off this podcast the way we sign off every episode of Pod Queens. Uh, thanks for listening to Robot vs. Dinosaurs. And until next time, P.S. dot dot dot. We out this bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. You stay. I go. <laughs> Thank you, Lou. This is great. I gotta watch this movie again hey y'all i'm gamal and i'm a culture queen i got my finger on the pulse mama I am Sajda. I am your contrary queen. I am giving you devil's advocate realness. I'm Jelani. I'm a tangent queen. I'm going to distract us from whatever it is we're talking about. And you need to listen to Pod Queens, a podcast where three queens wade into the steamy waters of culture. New episodes drop every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, that's Pod Queens spelled K W E E N S. Because spelling is what? Fundamental.
0: Thanks for listening to the Apocalypse Podcast Network. For more
1: great podcasts, go to ApocalypsePodcastNetwork.com. And remember, every time you support one of our sponsors, you're supporting the podcast you just heard.